Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm John Duke, and I'm your host for Leadership Breakfast. Why Leadership Breakfast? Because breakfast has been called the most important meal of the day. And as you know, if you've been listening, I want this podcast to really feed or fuel your leadership motor for the day, for the week, and get you started. And I'm excited today because I've I've said before that leadership is really an inside job. You're feeding your strength inside, you're feeding your leadership confidence to keep tackling the obstacles that come along each week and each month. And people really ignite your leadership. And so th- today I'm excited because I was posed this question from a, from a podcast or from a, one of the mentors I listened to, and it was about who is that person, like a favorite teacher you had or a leader when you were starting out in your career, and they ignited a passion inside of you that said, I want to do that, and I want to do it like that person does it. So I am excited to welcome Ray Wirtz with me, and I was able to reach out to him, and he um, he ignited that passion in me when I was early on in my career. I was just a sales rep, but I was working my way up the organization and I had aspirations to lead people. So I want to welcome Ray Wirtz. He's a former field sales director. He's a retired VP of sales at Ortho McNeil and also McNeil Consumer and Specialty Pharmaceuticals. So, Ray, I just want to welcome you and thank you and ask you to give our listeners a little bit of your your background today. Oh. Thanks, John, for having me. Uh, it's been a long time since I've talked to you. Uh, well, I started out as a sales representative um, at J&J and spent 30 years in sales and marketing. I uh, was a district manager. I was a product manager, product director, a group director in marketing, uh, field sales director at uh, McNeil Consumer, and uh, eventually became the VP of sales there. And the last four or five years, I spent as VP of Janssen Pharmaceutical, which was a, a big, broad organization of, you know, about, um, gosh, I guess it was maybe about 5,000 people in my group. And it was, you know, a bit of a, a challenge trying to keep a more personal kind of approach to that many people. But I did try my very best to manage that kind of personal approach with the management team, because at the end of the day, it's very difficult to try to manage 5,000 people, but a smaller group of managers that you might feel like you could have some significant impact on by, by sharing with them and, and, and having personal connections there should filter down and, and, and uh, hopefully would be a great opportunity. So I, I did my very best with that to try to help people, um, understand kind of what my philosophy was about leading people and why it was so important that a personal kind of touch was was valuable um, to lead. Definitely. I would just say your the fact that you were so approachable, I, I think is the word, and you hear a lot about that, about today's leadership, but this was back in the late 90s, uh, I believe, when you first... Mm-hmm took over and also this concept of servant leadership which is kind of yes are you trying to drive the business and deliver the business uh, strategies and objectives and be successful and therefore deliver value to shareholders yes but the prioritization in which you go after that is is more now with servant leadership is really putting the people 
first, the employees that are going to interface with the customer who are going to be the face of the brand. And that's something that was a hallmark for you. So when, when I saw this video or this challenge that was about, you know, who is that person for you? Who is that mentor? Who is that teacher? Who is that leader that ignited it for you? You, yours was the first name that popped into my head. And there were other people, you know, there's like Phyllis, my first manager, Leo, Sean, people like Lorraine. And then uh, recently before I retired, Bob Sterling was a, was a huge mentor for me as I became a more senior leader and I and I wrote you the little note on LinkedIn on January 18th. I, I still have it here because I, I think as a leader, this gets back to what fuels you and the legacy you want to leave. I just felt like it was important. I posed that question to my team of district managers and regional business directors and, you know, our contract uh, leadership team and asked them, you know, who is that person for you? But more so to, to remind them that in a leadership role, leading 10 people, you actually have the chance to be that person. What, what great jobs we have that we have the chance to leave a mark on people. And you were so approachable. Like you said, we hadn't talked in a long time. I think it's probably been, I don't know, 15, 20 years. But I was, I was comfortable reaching out to you because you had le- left that impression on me. How did you... I guess, how did you learn those attributes or did you get them from a, from a mentor? Like what, what had you sort of uh, like your compass focused on how important the people doing the work are? Well, yeah, I, two things. One is that um, if you assess kind of the business environment that you're in, you will quickly come to the realization that the most important asset that you have is are the people that you manage because without the people you, I mean, there are some businesses, I guess, obviously you, you don't need resources and people resources to be able to drive your results. But in the business that we're in, you needed people to go out and make calls per day, develop relationships with customers. But I also, I learned two things. One, um, as I was a young representative growing through the organization and wanting to become a manager, I learned two things. One, I learned what I didn't want to do based on a a manager that I had that was, I felt, you know, didn't really place the tremendous amount of value on developing and encouraging people to be their best. And then I had a manager that I felt did an exceptional job with that. And so I started to pattern my management practices when I became a manager after the manager that I felt the best about and and what his skills were. Um, Coincidentally, the one who valued people the most was the one that also had the best business outcomes. And so if you value that and you see a pattern for someone that's demonstrating that, it would be, I think, uh, a wise way to go because good skills with developing uh, relationships and personal um, mentorship for uh, your people and business outcomes is probably the best scenario. But what I really tried to do with folks was I tried to um, motivate and inspire them. And you can motivate and inspire people if you have um, develop some type of work relationship that 
they feel like they're as much a part of the team as you are. And so that's that's what I tried to to do. And it and it worked out throughout my career. I I was um at the end of my career there at J and J I um I reflected back on and I thought, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I would bet that if I were to contact eighty to ninety percent of the people that I uh, worked with in the organizations that I worked with, they would have some very positive things to say about number one, the way I treated them, the way I motivated them, the way I inspired them, and the way I led them as a manager. There's no question. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> I'm probably not worthy to be the one to, to for you to hear that from, but make no mistake. Uh, that is for sure. Um, two things that I really appreciate that you said. One was that bookend between, unfortunately, you know, you do, you learn a lot from watching someone or being managed by someone who doesn't, you know, put people first or maybe doesn't really uh, inspire you and, and make you want to do your best work. But then that second part about those who do it exceptionally well, I love that you said, that person also had good business results. Because I think today what we wrestle with is this, that like if you're, if you're focused on people, that somehow you might be compromising accountability or results. And I don't believe that's true, but I think that's a, a bit of a stigma that, that people wrestle with, that if I'm, if I'm too in tune to the people and supporting them and, quote, serving them, then somehow that could mean that I'm, I'm – not focused on high accountability and results. So I just, I appreciated that you said that because I don't think it has to be a compromise. Yeah. I think um, anytime you um, develop uh, people and people understand kind of what your um, objectives are, and at the same time, you're approachable where they can come to you and talk to you candidly about maybe what issues they're facing. And they know that you're going to try to be helpful and supportive and be a, a person to really try to overcome their objectives with them. It's, it's a, it's a team approach. And so I always thought that if you were able to successfully uh, engage your um, employees that you worked with, you were going to get high quality outcomes and at the same time, um, those are folks based on they know that you kind of have their back. They're going to kind of have your back. And the, that's the best of both worlds. High, high quality. Um, you become one good team. But um, at the end of the day, you get the best possible outcomes that you can get from a business standpoint. No question about about feeling like you have people's back. That was another hallmark of yours. And it leads me into another little discussion I wanted to have with you related to uh, rules versus standards, because this was something you were also really good at. And the first time I heard it articulated was from Herm Edwards, who's a, who was an NFL football coach for the Jets, but now he's at the uh, Univ Arizona State University. And he made this quote that I'm not a rules guy. I'm a standards guy. He was talking about himself. And I also found something similar from Coach K, which is fitting since I know your oldest son, Jared, went to Duke University and, and Coach K announced his retirement. But he's quoted in this book, this little book uh, from this gentleman that I follow, Brett Ledbetter, and he has this whole platform 
called What Drives Winning. And this is a little book if you want people want to get it. It's What Drives Winning Environments. And it's it's really valuable. But there's a little section in here from Coach K. And he talks about the difference of a standard and what it does versus a rule and what it does. And you, you touched on some of this. I'll read you a little bit of it. The purpose of a standard is to motivate and inspire. You even said that, inspire. The purpose of a rule is to enforce control. Think about the different energy between standards and rules. One is about choosing to be your best, which I love. The other is about following a required impose, something imposed on you by an outside force where there is no choice. And he says, from a management position, standards also give you more latitude to deal with the gray area of each situation. You are outstanding at that. Rules are very black and white, and they can back you into a corner. All these things affirm Coach K's approach with uh, his first U.S. Olympic team. And if you were to ask him what the primary responsibility of a coach is, here's what he would say. Your primary responsibility as a coach is to become one with the player and then become one with the team. And that's what you should be spending most of your time on. And I, I thought... I thought you you nicely touched on a couple of those things that you wanted to inspire people, and you knew that by doing that, by lear- knowing what makes them tick and what what will fuel them, and that you have their back, that you are becoming actually one with the team, and you're not imposing rules that might back you in the corner. You were fit so good, Ray, at looking at each in- individual situation, and I took this from you. And and looking at the circumstances, it's almost like situational leadership to problem solving. You were really good at looking at the conditions and making a decision on that versus saying, well, I got to follow the rule, and now I'm backed into a corner. But you were fantastic at that. Well, so you know, I'd love to hear I, you. I, John, talk. I'll have um, one example of kind of this standards versus rules. And, and you'll quickly, I think, um, relate to this. Um, in our business, we used to say, well, you have to make seven physician calls a day. That was kind of a, a rule. But the real standard for that is seven quality physician calls a day. So anybody could go out and say, you know, I saw about seven doctors. They didn't really have any impact. They didn't have um, anything that was positive about it, but they were meeting the rule, because the rule says seven. But the standard implies that someone goes into those seven calls and does something that is of value to himself or herself, but also of value to their team. Because if you make seven quality calls or more, what that ends up happening is it allows you to um, drive business to a point where you are impacting the overall team because something positive's happened. And if you made five quality calls versus seven, that standard of quality is interjected into standards, whereas sometimes quality is not interjected into what rules are. And so I used to always look at uh, circumstances that people would have because some areas were tougher to get in to see customers. Some areas had some other kinds of uh, managed care restrictions. There. But if it was a standard where people were doing their very best and what they were recording was the quality of what they did, it was always better than kind of trying to um, 
managed based on rules. I, I used to say um, people who uh, work through standards were building a team, whereas people who worked on rules were um, trying to um, keep themselves out of uh, being looked upon for outcomes. So if I'm just making if I'm just making seven calls, you can't say, "Hey, I'm following the rules." But if you made five really high impact calls, quality calls, and you were moving business in a more positive direction, I'd take the standards of that any day over what the rule says. So would I. That was pure gold. That last that line that you shared that was fantastic. And it brings me to another discussion topic as a as becoming and in, in building yourself as a quality leader. Before I retired, I was working on um, working on agile training, and part of our agile training was servant leadership. And there was a characteristic or behavior that J and J had. I'm not saying it's in the it's in the. If you look it up, if you Google it, you might not find this one. But it was described as do actual work. Servant leaders regularly engage directly with their teams, consumers, and customers, right? Directly engage with your team where value is created. Understand what's happening at every level. Talk to consumers, talk to customers, and other stakeholders outside the company, and actually understand the work that's going on with your team. And I think it could be summed up maybe as you might hear it phrased as keep in touch with the demands and the complexity of the frontline workers, right? The team members who interface with our customers and they deliver your core service or product. And if you think about it, it's almost like the, the show Undercover Boss. I, I don't know. You've probably uh, heard I about it, right? Or, or you've seen an episode. Yeah, I'm sure then it, it the, you know, it probably triggered the, the same thinking for you as it did for me is which here's this huge show and really what it's saying is don't get so far away from the people who actually deliver your goods and services wherever you sit that all of a sudden you know you have to put a bad wig on and a goatee and you have to get out there and watch people try and make you know 50 pizzas in an hour or fold a hundred boxes or deliver uh, customer service at a hotel or do do the maintenance work and 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 make sure people are having a fantastic vacation at your hotel. So it's it's very, I think it's very important. And I think you were really good at that as far as building trust because people felt like, look, Ray is going to go back to senior management and he's not afraid to say, look, I've been out there. Let me just tell you what everybody's doing. You know, they're trying to deliver four product presentations and they got coolers and they're putting, you know, Benacol on crackers and, you know, get it. let me just tell you what they're doing. And I think a good leader is able to have that voice to stand up for how hard people are working out there and wait before you sort of judge or think like, oh, they should be able to make 10 calls or let's throw another product in the bag. They should be able to do it. You were excellent at being that voice. And then if you came back and it, you, it built such trust that if you came back, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm just telling you, the forecast is going to have to be $750 million. Everybody was like, that's it. Because Ray, I'm sure he went to bat and we know what he's all about. So guess what? Gear up and we're going to hit $750 million. And I just think that's a true testament to a leader um, that people trust that you have their best interest in their voice. But then when you come back and say, hey, guys, it is what it is. Here's why. 
people just then go out and get after you it know, for you. You know, I one of the the servant leadership thing. I you know haven't been away from the business for a long period of time. I wasn't quite familiar with exactly what what that concept was, but. Years ago, one of the things that I would try my very best to do was to actually go out, even even when I became a VP, to go out with sales representatives and actually make calls because I wanted to be able to see how difficult is it for people to be able to do what we're asking them to do. And um, I would go out and make calls. I can remember as a regional business director making calls with their representative and then having the representative after the call was over, get back in the car and give me the evaluation of what took place in the call. And they said, well, you did this well, you did this well, you didn't do this. And it quickly became apparent to me that, boy, maybe some of the things that they're being confronted with with our customers are unrealistic. How can we try to make the environment one where they can achieve the things we're asking them to achieve, but that they're realistic in terms of uh, expectations? I always feel that if you aren't putting yourself in the shoes of your employees it's very difficult for you to be able to come up with solutions to address the concerns and issues that they may be facing. So I know that, you know, the higher people go in organizations, the general um, rule is the less focused they become on the outcome of what their, uh, what their representatives or their managers are being confronted with in terms of dealing with customers. But I think that's probably not a good approach if you plan to try to make changes to improve the overall health of the organization and improve improve the overall ability of the people that um, work with you. You got to be able to understand exactly what they do, what they're confronted with, and then take that and put it in the grinder to figure out what are the things that you can do as a leader to make their job better, easier, more productive so that they can achieve the outcomes that you have the expectations for. Yes, I couldn't agree more. During the during the quarantine, we actually had some of the district managers making outbound phone calls, right? We all went to like a teleservice and a virtual type models and we had some of the district managers cover vacant territories one of the best things we could have ever done because you're now you're saying like wait a minute i tried to make 25 outbound phone calls in the middle of a pandemic and let me just tell you what it's like when you're calling doctor's offices and they're busy and you know and it allowed us to make adjustments that put the customer first instead of like you said saying well you know we got to get 18 outbound calls and that's it no we got to serve the customer and whatever you do all day to serve the customer is what's going to make the difference i want to wrap wrap up on this last discussion block because, Ray, it wouldn't be enough to say you served your people or that you were a champion for people without recognizing how much of a role model you you were for diversity and inclusion, and specifically people of color. So, spoiler alert, I'm white, you're a black male. <laughs> but in such a large organization, I mean, you said it, you were such a champion back then during your tenure, tenure 
um, but specifically, and not at any inclusive way, but for people of color, because I didn't feel any less supported by you. But I know on a larger level, you were a champion for the impact and value of more diverse people in your organization and their backgrounds that unlock a different voice, a perspective. Yes, skin color, but experiences in their journey into and throughout the organization. The true power of both diversity and inclusion as a competitive advantage and to fuel a breadth of perspectives and innovative approaches. Um, can you speak to that as you reflect back and more specifically as you look at where we are today, right, as a country trying to make better progression off of the events of 2020 related to race inequities, racism challenges that exploded last year? Um, because I, I feel like it wasn't just the diversity component that you were a champion for. It was really the inclusion and 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 just how how big you were for doing that and, and talking more about what kind of yeah. courage that, that well, takes. Well, you know, John, I um diversity was was a big, big part of what I wanted to leave as a legacy. Um and and I don't mean just the fact that we promoted minorities and women and that we had the makeup of the group a little bit different than the, the one that I inherited when I took over the job. I wanted to make sure that the the group reflected kind of the voices, the um, the way our country probably could work best. And that is that people had a voice, people were listening. So the first step, though, is is really you have to kind of go and look at metrics to see kind of where you are, because if you don't, you 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 won't have the ability to be able to try to infuse different people, different mindsets into the organization. So we looked at metrics. We were not a very good organization when I um, first got there in terms of metrics, and so we changed that. We didn't lower the standard. We just told people that if this is your this is what you want to do in terms of advancing in the corporation here's kind of the standards that you have to meet and they people rose to the occasion because number one they felt like for the first time they had an opportunity that if they did what they were supposed to do from a standard standpoint that they would get an opportunity so we used that as the first first method but then the bigger picture was we can be a better organization if we have people with different voices that um, address different issues that maybe if we're a, a, a homogenous group of men, we wouldn't understand or know. And as a result, um, that organization grew, but it was the openness to listen to what people had to say and then try to make the adjustments with those ideas that they brought forward that I think really propelled our organization to be successful. So now fast forward that to our current environment or situation as a country. I think what we have gotten to is that there is less willingness for people to listen. And as a result, we are missing a lot of opportunities of things that could be addressed quickly, easily, if people had the ability to listen to some of the concerns and not so much put yourself in 
that place of, if we do that, it's going to hurt me. I say, if we do a particular thing, it probably helps the overall group to get better. And I think that's where we we are at. We, we've got to understand that um, change is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And if we make the appropriate change through listening, through discussion, that it lifts the whole or it lifts the whole country up to a place where it's better, and it doesn't uh, prohibit someone from advancing themselves. It just makes the environment a better environment for us to grow. I um I was I was a bit um not sure kind of what to actually say when I saw all the things taking place over the last year. And I know that, you know, uh, leadership plays a great role in making sure that things can become better and stuff. And I, and I think if, if, if you have a, le- a leader that listens and sets the tone, then people will have a tendency to have a more open um, opportunity to, to express things that might need to change and do better. Um, I think we're trying to get to a place where we're better as a, as a, as a country. Um, I think corporations have a critical role to play. And I think through corporations, uh, as they continue to um, be a voice for people in this country about how things should be done and they demonstrate that, I think things will get better. But it'll take some time. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you that um, it was it was valuable. It was necessary. The things that were hard to hear, if you're uh, you know if you're uh, part of white America in this country, there are some things that were really valuable to hear. I got I you and I both worked for Johnson and Johnson, who has done a tremendous job in terms of training and educating on all. A variety of the topics that were interlinked to to uh, last year, and so I feel really fortunate. But you mentioned leadership, and I just wanted to make a point to to kind of double back on the courage that it takes because I had someone who I'm still a colleague, uh, Christine, who I'm still friends with. We work together uh, in the Eastern Region, and she made it a point to say that you were really intentional about elevating diversity and inclusion, unlike other leaders who might make it to a level where you could you could spearhead diversity of inclusion, but you do maybe become fearful of your own status, right, and perceive risk to your status. And I know that might sound shallow, but I think we all can relate to a time when we're brand new, we made it somewhere, we feel really good about that, and then all of a sudden we hold on to it too tight, and we're worried about what people might think of us, you know, and are they going to... Uh, you know, being not so uh, happy about, you know, articulating views and viewpoints. And we're just sort of new in, in this in this position of of stature. But you weren't like that. Like you were not fearful of that you were you were focused on, you know, bringing people with you. Uh, along that path and on that journey, and as you said, it, they were totally qualified. But it was it was your commitment to speak up uh, and to share and and to add to that. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, this was probably a couple of months ago. I listened to John Gordon's 
podcast, Positive University. And for anyone who wants to listen to this one, I would recommend it. But he had a guest, and her name was Lovey Ajay Jones. I don't know if you, you know her, but um, it was, the, the episode was called Overcoming the Enemy of Progress, Fear. And she had this one quote that I, I loved. And again, it's that intention, intentionality and being sometimes you got to push the envelope to get people to understand. She said, if I cannot trust you with my rage, I cannot trust you with myself. So does she mean literally rage? No, I saw it as a metaphor for our true selves. If I can't be my true self, let's say I talk with my hands and I get called all excited and I bring so so much passion, who I am completely, right? I think that's important part of inclusion is making sure that people feel like they belong and it's not just the diversity metrics of this is what our employees or our sales force looks for us, but looks like, but are they able to be themselves? And she has a book that's entitled The Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual, Lessons from a Professional Troublemaker. And again, I think you hear the word troublemaker. I think she's just trying to be, and when I heard her on the podcast, she's just trying to be intentional about her passion and her commitment to her cause to help people not be afraid to maximize their diversity and elevate the room with their voice and their perspective. And I just found it so refreshing and so important because it's the other side of that inclusion. Like if you're not taking advantage of people's diversity and listening to them, then it's only you know, one half um, of it. I, I had hoped that when I got to a time for me to retire, that if I looked back that people would see um, me as one, a champion for people in the organizations that I led and um, that I was less concerned about my own personal upward mobility and more concerned about people um, growing personally so that they had opportunities to advance themselves. So I, I, I feel like if you work to make the group better, if you listen to what they have to say, if you are um, someone who is an advocate for going forward with uh, supporting people and their ideas and less concerned about self-preservation, the likelihood is you're going to get to the level that you want to get to as an, as an employee or as a leader anyway. But boy, if you can get people um, to believe and follow and you support them, you're going to have a whole army of people that get to levels in an organization that makes the organization much, much better. And I always used to say I was not afraid that I was going to get fired because I had an opinion about something. I, uh, I, was, I was never afraid that I could go into our boardroom and someone would start to question whether or not the group was as best they could be because I would always stand up and express to the board what our group was doing, how talented we were, we were, and why we were moving forward with the with um, with it as being a, an organization that should be um, looked upon as as among the best that were out there in the industry, and so. Um, I had challenges sometimes when people would push back on certain people that I felt like should be moved uh, up because, you know, I felt like, hey, they've 
I know them. This is what they demonstrated. This is the outcome. But I was never one who wanted to have self-preservation as I made it. So now I'm going to leave you on your own because I just felt like as an organization, if you have leaders like that, then what you um, encourage is you'll start to have turnover that's like you, you wouldn't believe because people would feel like, hey, I joined the organization because I needed to have someone as a mentor to help support me and help me reach my goals as they're reaching their goals. And my thought was the more people I had in the organization that reached their goals, the better it was for me. And so I reached the goals that I had while at the same time trying to bring people along so that they reach their goals and not being concerned that if there were people in the organization that actually did better than I was able to do, I thought that was a a big bonus. That was great. I couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. I had some people that have gone far beyond where I am. And it's it's some of the things I'm the most proud of and, and thankful for. And there's no question that you did leave the legacy that you intended to leave. You were a huge champion for people. You made people feel they could be themselves. You made people comfortable. And when you're comfortable, you can do your best work. I, I, I think that's my whole thing about po- power of positive leadership. And about gratitude and, you know, and and relationships and getting to know people. Like, you're trying to make sure that this person that you felt was valuable to bring into your organization, that they can be themselves and they can can reach their full potential. So there's no question you did that. And thank gosh that you did that for so many of us. So I'm thankful. And uh, it reflects the, the, the... comfort <laughs> that I have in having these conversations with you. It's been fantastic. I know I'm only supposed to go 20 minutes with this thing, but now I'm finding out, you know, when you have, when you have great leaders and you can share them with, you know, however many listeners I have on this thing, um, you don't want to stop. But I will do the, the wrap-up and turn it over to you. Well, we always have some take-home points. And so from you, I would love the people who listen to this uh, and make no mistake, there's a little group on Facebook that is like McNeil, uh, uh, McNeil Consumer and Specialty Pharmaceuticals. So I'm sure they're, sure they're going to hear this, and I hope I did justice uh, to someone that I know they, they really admire and appreciate. But what are some of your one, two, however many you have valuable lessons or behaviors you would pass on to a developing people leader or someone who's a leader and just trying to yeah, I, leave I that same kind of legacy? Me, the first thing is as a leader, um, be someone that really motivates and inspires the people that work with you. Um, Because if you can motivate them and inspire them, the likelihood is they're going to be able to far exceed whatever expectations you might have for the organization that you lead. Secondly, don't worry about self-preservation as a leader. Just go out and do what's right. Motivate those folks to be the best they can and give of yourself so that you can help them because in the long run the better they are the better the organization is and then the last thing i would say is um try to develop a team that um works together for a positive outcome and you can only develop a team if you as a leader are leading, but also participating. 
I love it. Ray, thank you so much for joining me. The, the My wrap-up is this. This has been one of the best episodes I've had. So for everyone listening, I hope you, you caught this one. It went a little bit longer, but if you could share this through Spotify or through Apple Podcasts or you can like it and download it, um, I think others will get I hope what I got out of it today, just as just as the host, I got so much out of it. Uh, and Ray, thank you so much for yeah, joining thanks, us. Thanks, John, today. for inviting me. I truly appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Ray.